opening up God's Word again. So I'm, I'm very thankful for just, the, just really the distinct privilege it is to um, be able to preach. Thankful uh, for Sam and for Jason for, uh, Sam's been preaching every week, but you know, Jason kicked in, so thanks Jason for doing that. Thank you, man. Appreciate that. The doctrine of Christ and Sam going through Hebrews. So, so very thankful. So I, the last time I preached, I was, uh, well actually, uh, I did a message um, from our study uh, in First Peter, uh, but we had just finished chapter 14 in First Corinthians, and I, I made the statement at the time that um, we're going to go back into First Corinthians closer to each Easter, and we'll read about the resurrection, and then I'll finish chapter 16 online uh, in two messages, so we'll get through that. But one of my desires as a, as, a, as a pastor and a preacher is to start out Matthew in, at the time where I'd be preaching the Christmas passage on Christmas. So the Lord uh, allowed that to happen. So today, I know you're excited, we're going to look at a genealogy, the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 1, 1 through 17. Now, as we think about Christmas and the wonder of Christmas, many things come to mind, right? We all have different things that we like the best about Christmas. Uh, quite frankly, I'm driven by my stomach in so many ways, and one thing that I enjoy every single Christmas is the magic cookie bar. And I, I don't, whoever came up with this combination of, of sweets uh, was brilliant. And, and I, I, next to a slice of pecan pie, this, this is the best thing you can possibly have with a cup of coffee. So every Christmas we have this, and so... We have this battle in our house because I like things cooked. My girls are in the undercooked world. It's like something with this younger generation, like they eat cookies, and I'm like, it's called a cookie. You need to cook it all the way um, because it's still kind of partially raw, it seems like, in the middle. So in our house, it's how done should the magic cookie bar be? And so I was studying yesterday, and my wife runs upstairs. She's frantic. Oh, no, 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 no. And she runs, and she grabs the uh, 9 by 13 out of the oven. And it's a pan of magic cookie bars, and the top is just all caramelized. You know what I'm talking about? That is good stuff. She says, it's ruined. I'm like, no, it's not ruined. It's the way I like it. And she said, nobody's going to eat this. No, I will eat it. And in fact, uh, two-thirds of the 9 by 13 is gone. Now, I didn't eat it all. I've had some help from my son-in-law. But Christmas and food and magic cookie bars. So what's the first thing you, you try to, when you go, when you transition from Thanksgiving, let's not talk about Halloween, Thanksgiving to, to, towards Christmas, right after you switch your dial to 100.3 WNIC, if you haven't done it already, right, you get the Christmas songs nonstop, you do what? You get your Christmas tree going, right? Some people have put it up before Thanksgiving, and I, I've noticed that. And though sometimes I think it's a little bit sacrilegious, I, I can roll with it, right? I think somebody said, well, if you only get to have it for a little while, you might as well get it up as soon as you can and enjoy it. Okay. The Christmas trees are an integral part of Christmas, right? There's this anticipation, right? Isn't that like a big part of it? The anticipation of Christmas, looking forward to that moment when you're gathered around the tree and you try to find a seat amongst all the presents and you sit down and all the presents are open. It's that counting towards Christmas Day, right? And so... So we had this thing called what? An advent calendar, right? You count, they even have advent calendars for dogs now, I think. I, I saw that little dog treat every little day. 
And so we have an advent calendar, and I, I, you know, I don't know why there's an, an overweight Scandinavian elf back there. Look, he's, he's taking the garbage out. It's Santa Claus. And so we count the days towards Christmas, right? Last Saturday was what? It was, no, well, actually, there's one more Saturday before Christmas, right? You start counting, like, the Saturdays before Christmas if you own a, own a business and you're selling things, the retail. So it's this counting, this is Advent. And Advent is the period, this is not from the Bible, okay? This, Advent is something that we've created, okay? Let's just understand this. This is not a, necessarily a, you know, having this calendar is not a biblical concept whatsoever, as a matter of fact, this one's very uh, pagan almost. Advent is the period beginning four Sundays before Christmas and observed by some Christians as a season of prayer and fasting. Now, as I looked at this definition, I never associated fasting with Advent, right? Because what do you do with all those parties prior to Christmas? I, no, sorry, I'm fasting. I, I, maybe some people do that, right? But it's anticipating the coming of Christ at the Incarnation. Now, some of you may not understand that word incarnation. If you think of the word, it, it sounds kind of bad, but carnivore, right? That's a meat eater, it's flesh. So incarnation is the enfleshment of the Son of God. That, that, that time that we celebrate the fact that the Son of God took on a human nature forever, right? The Son of God is at the right hand of the Father, and he is in a glorified body. So we anticipate the coming of Christ, and that's what we call Advent. And really, all of history has been one of Advent, right? From the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, and they were separated from God, and God made the promise of a Messiah, there has been this looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the one who would reverse the curse and destroy the works of the devil and give us salvation and take away our sins and and, and restore our relationship with God. There's been this looking forward to the coming of Christ. And now we're looking forward to the coming of Christ, right? We're looking for the second advent. Okay, for those of you that are big on talking about the rapture, I'm not talking about the rapture. I'm talking about the second coming of Christ when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. So as we consider advent and we consider Christmas and counting down the days, as we look at the text today, we need to get through this thing called a genealogy, right? And believe it or not, genealogies are big business now, right? There's this Ancestry.com, right? You can go on there. I I think they, I believe you have to like give up some DNA, right? Swab your mouth or whatever. And and then you send it in and and they'll tell you things maybe you don't want to know, you know, or things you're looking forward to knowing. But it's big business, right? During the pandemic, they were sold or purchased for $4.7 billion dollars. So people are interested in their lineage. lineage. All of us kind of want to know, like, where we came from. And sadly, most of us have very unexciting, uh, ans- a very unexciting ancestry. One of my favorite painters is Norman Rockwell. I love the way he captures life. It's amazing. And this certainly is uh, one of his better portraits, right? This is called the family tree. And you see there at the bottom, right, you've got... You know, you've got a rascal and that very mysterious-looking woman, and, and, right? and they have a son, right? And then he marries the redhead, and, and then the, the tree you know, goes up, and you have A.J. at the top. You see that? <laughs> the redhead. But there are some very, perhaps, unscrupulous characters there in the family tree. It looks like on the right there's a pastor 
there's the pastor on the right side. We, we can assume maybe he was, he may have been unscrupulous too, right? But in any family tree, there are some unsavory characters. There are some, some good ones too. And so as we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we're going to see some good ones and some bad ones. So we're going to see how God works through the good and the bad in his sovereignty to give us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So today we're looking at the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider Matthew's gospel, as I go, I'll begin discussing more and more about some of the background and about the purpose of Matthew. Matthew really wants to present Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. So it's a historical historical account of the life of Jesus Christ. But it's also an apologetic. He's not apologizing for Jesus. Apologetic means a defense, right? This is Jesus Christ... uh, he, we, we claim that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of the Jews. And this is why we say Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. He is the savior of the world. So it's an apologetic. He's giving evidence. And then it's an evangelical book, right? He's calling us to follow Jesus Christ. And he begins with this genealogy because he wants us to understand that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is a long-awaited Messiah, God's king for all people. You ever notice the world's always looking for a hero? Right? There was a song back in the 80s, right? I need a hero. We love heroes. We love that one who will turn the wrongs into right, the one who will save us, the one who will deliver us from evil. I mean, movies are just full of that. I mean, that's, that's basically 80% of what's, uh, you know, in, in, in TV and the movies is good overcoming evil, and there is a hero or a heroine. We love a hero, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate hero in that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that had been prophesied way back in Genesis, and that all of humanity had been looking toward the one who would rescue God's people. And so we're going to begin with the genealogy. Now, lots of names here. So, so what we're going to do is try to, to learn from this genealogy and see how it applies to us. So let's read through the text and, and don't get too bogged down with the names. Uh, I'm going to try to give you understanding and not put you to sleep. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Right? That's his point. The son of David, the son of Abraham. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile into Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel is the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. 
Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. So he's going to explain now in verse 17 how, how this, this, uh, um, this family tree, this lineage, this genealogy is set up. He says, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now Luke, in his gospel account, has a genealogy, right? Luke's is different. So, so Matthew just began with Abraham and went to Jesus. Luke begins with Jesus and goes to God. The names are almost completely different. And so there's a lot of discussion, you know, what, you know, you know is, is Luke giving Jacob, uh, Joseph's side in, in a kind of a different way as Matthew is giving Joseph's side? Or is, is, is Luke giving Mary's side? And many conservative scholars today believe that, that Luke's account is, is giving us Mary, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about, about that more as we go. Um, and, and really, if you really want to get it in depth, you just have to Google it, because I'm not going to spend a lot of time here trying to give you the differences between Luke and Matthew. But they are different. They're not contradictory. Some people would like to say that, well, they're so different, there has to be a contradiction. Well, there's, there are no contradictions in God's Word. There may be apparent contradictions, but there are no contradictions. So why begin with a genealogy? Why does Matthew do this for us? Is he trying to put us to sleep right at the beginning? Like, oh, yeah, I know you need to sleep, so start reading this, and you're there. You'll be asleep. Well, no, that's not what he's trying to do. And in fact, in the Jewish mind, this is very exciting stuff, right? And it would be exciting for you, too, if you'd given up some DNA, and they sent you the piece of paper, and you start reading from where people are from and all the names that are there. You'd be excited about that. Well, Matthew is excited about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's seen him raised from the dead. He was with him in his ministry. And he wants to tell people about Jesus. And his audience is a Jewish audience. And so he wants the Jews that he's writing to to understand, look, I'm going to make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And you know that the Messiah has to be a Jew. And he has to be a son of David. And I'm going to show that to you now. I'm going to prove it to you. The Jews were very meticulous genealogical uh, scribes. I, you know, this, I really thought, I heard people say that before, and I thought, well, who really does that? We moved to Hamtramck. I met an Albanian guy, and he was here for the anniversary, Mark Dushai. And Mark and I were talking about this one time. He said, did you know in Albanian culture, you know your genealogy way, way, like hundreds and hundreds of years. Like that was a part of, of, of what they did as a family was they memorized the genealogy of their family. It's just not common to our culture. Like, most of you may not even know who your great-grandparents, what their names are. Right? That would be horrible in this context. So why begin with a genealogy? Because Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the long-awaited Messiah, God's king for all people. He wants you to understand that and believe it. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus, in this genealogy, this is why he begins with it, is that Jesus has a legitimate lineage as a son, of, a son of Abraham, a son of David, to be the king of the Jews and Messiah. He's legit. Right? Everybody knew that you have to be a son of David if you're going to be the Messiah. 
And he begins that way in verse 1, right? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. That's the kingly line, right? David wasn't the first king, Saul was, but David was the prototypical king, and he had to be a Jew. He came from the line of Abraham, right? So, so we see David is there. He's, he's critical to this genealogy. But so is, um, and, it, and as, as David is critical to this genealogy, here is why. Here is why David is such a big deal. Because in David's life, as David sometimes uh, successfully obeyed and served the Lord, sometimes failed miserably, God made a tremendous promise to David. David wanted to build an incredible house for the Ark of the Covenant, an incredible house for God. And God said, you know what? You're not the person to build this temple for me, but guess what? You will always have a descendant on your throne. Your throne is eternal. And so in 2 Samuel 7, this is a very famous passage, God says this to David through the prophet. He says, your house and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So in the mind of the Jew... The Messiah was going to come from the line of David, and his throne was going to last forever. And so all the way through the prophets, you know, once David dies and Solomon comes to reign, and then all the the kingdom splits and all these different kings, and the prophets are writing, central to the writing of the prophets is the one who would come and set things right, and he would be called the son of David. Sometimes they even flat out say David will reign Although David's already dead, so he's talking about a future Messiah. One example is Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Right? You have a family tree, a a, a branch. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. And one commentator says this about the understanding of the Messiah. In Matthew, however, however, so let me back up. In the Jewish mind, as they considered a Messiah, the Messiah was somebody who was going to defeat all the enemies of Israel. He was going to set up his kingdom, and all the nations would come to worship this king. It was, it was military, it was land, it was peace, it was prosperity. And this commentator, Osborne, says this. In Matthew, however, the emphasis is obviously not on destroying Israel's enemies, but on the fulfillment of prophecy. The deliverance Jesus offers, listen, is not political, but spiritual. Even so, Jesus fulfilling Davidic expectations is critical to this gospel. Friends, the world still wants a Jesus who will deliver them from their temporal struggles. I need better health. I need more money. I need my life to be better. I need to be delivered from this. I was sharing the gospel yesterday at work with this young lady. Her body is just wrecked. She's like a walking skeleton. And she's just abused her life with drugs and alcohol. It's the saddest thing. And I'd finished working with her, and she had been emotional earlier. And I I thought, you know, I just need to share the gospel with her. So I took the time to share the gospel with her, and, and I had her attention for the minute, for a minute. And she says, I've cried out to God, and he hasn't given me a house yet. And my heart was just broken. 
Do you understand what you need? Do you understand who you need? You need a spiritual savior. So David is the prototypical king, and the Messiah had to come through David, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. But God has a bigger vision than that. God has the desire for the entire world, right? It began with Abraham, didn't it? And through Abraham, God made a promise that he would bless the entire world. That Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, will bless all the peoples on the earth, not just Israel. You're familiar with this, Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever, you, whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So not only is this Messiah the one who will deliver the children of Israel, he will deliver the entire world. The Messiah had to come through, from Abraham through David to be legitimate. And that's Matthew's point here at the beginning. So as we look at this family tree, just who is in this family tree, right? Who are these characters that are described for us by Matthew in this opening section of Matthew's gospel? So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go through this family tree, and I'm going to, I can't stop at everybody, but I'm going to point out some highlights, right? So what I'm doing is, is the people who were good, that I know were good, are in green. The people who were just rascals, they're going to be in red. And then, guess what? You know what's so unique about Matthew and his genealogy is that he includes women. You might think, well, of course he does, right? We're in one context, one culture. They were in another, okay? Yeah. At that time, women weren't a part of the genealogy. And Matthew includes the women in the genealogy. So, let's begin. Abraham, he's, he's in yellow. I didn't mention yellow. He's the beginning of it, okay? He's, he's the... The Jews all traced their ancestry from Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you were going to write a genealogy, and you were trying to make it look good for the public, right? If you wanted to spin it so everybody looks at it and goes, Oh, it looks good you probably wouldn't mention Tamar's name here. If you go to Genesis chapter 38, don't go there. Um, Judah was a rascal, okay? He was a rascal. And he was, his, his son was married to Tamar. And, and there was, you know, the Bible says his son dies. And, you know, according to the Bible, another one of uh, the brothers should have married Tamar. And Judah wasn't going to have that. He didn't want Tamar to have any part of his inheritance. And Tamar's, she's not a Jew, she's a Gentile. And, and so, long story short, Tamar comes up with this plan. She poses as a prostitute. She gets pregnant by Judah, okay? And Perez is the child of that very unsavory incident. Genesis chapter 38, it's included in the genealogy. God didn't shy away from that. We continue. As, and now as, we, as we, we're here, we're not in Egypt yet. As soon as we get this slide right, Hezron was the first of the descendants of Abraham to go into Egypt. Okay? Uh, he's, he was in Egypt. You know, along with the, the, the brothers, they were there, but he was, he was there the whole time, right? So Hezron, 
For as was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Menadab, and Menadab the father of Nashon. And then they come out of Israel, they come out into the wilderness, right? Nashon is, is mentioned as, as one who was helping take the census uh, for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Nashon was the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that Rahab was a lot older than Boaz. And so we have to bring up at this point that when they did the genealogy, not everybody's included. And so in between some of the names, you can have a couple hundred years, 300 years, you can have a skip. And so just because there's a skip doesn't mean they're, they're not related. Okay, They're still related. Great, great, great grandfather. Okay, but there's still a relation. They're still in the family tree. So as we move in this direction, as we move from Perez to Boaz, right, you might remember the end of the book of Ruth. Because some people say the whole reason for the book of Ruth is that, is that the, you know, whoever was that, that wrote Ruth was trying to, to say this is how David came to be. And this is how David is of the proper lineage. This is how David should be king. And so Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Rahab was, she was a prostitute, okay? Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. What a beautiful story, the story of Ruth. That's why I have a heart there. And I also have a word up there on the top left-hand side. I believe it's top left-hand side. It's Hased. We talk about this from time to time. Hesed is God's covenantal love. Sometimes you read of it as loving kindness. Hesed is God's stubborn love. Hesed is God saying, you know what? I made a covenant with you. I made a covenant with you, Abraham, that you are going to bless all the nations of the earth. From you is going to come one who's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And we've seen how his descendants have been just not good. And God says, I am going to bless the nations anyway because I'm faithful and I'm loving. And then in the story of Ruth, God takes a Moabitess, a non-Jew, whose husband dies, and she takes, he takes her to a place that she's never been before, and he introduces her to Boaz. And they get married. And they have a son named Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. It's a highlight, right? So, so you go from Abraham to David, you're kind of going up. This, this is, this, this, you're climbing upward. This is good to David. Well, now guess what? We're going to go down. We're going to go down. Before we go down, though, we also see another woman mentioned, Uriah. Uriah's wife. It doesn't mention Bathsheba, but it's Uriah's wife, right? So David was the father of Solomon, Whose mother, had, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, right? We know the story of King David, how he took Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. And then to hide his sin, he has Uriah sent to the front of the battle where he is killed. In a sense, he has Uriah murdered. Friends, God is full of loving kindness. He is full of faithfulness. David's the prototypical king. He commits adultery, and he has a man murdered, and God still blesses him because of his covenant with his people. It's interesting here. This would be where Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy differ, right? Matthew goes through Solomon, 
Luke goes through Nathan, another one of David's sons. All right, so now we've gone up to David. Now we're, we're going back down, okay? It's going to get really bad. And I have Solomon. I have a little bit of red at the end of Solomon's name because Solomon did some things that were, like you, you read about Solomon's wisdom, and I, this baffles me. Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth. And then you read about the number of wives and his concubines and the alliances he made. You're like, if you're so wise, why did you do this? So Solomon is the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father. Now, you know that uh, Solomon, there's Rehoboam and there's uh, Jeroboam. And the kingdom splits, okay? So through Jeroboam, you have the northern kingdom, ten tribes. You have, it's called Israel. And through uh, Rehoboam, you have, you're going to have the two southern tribes. You have Judah. And so the kingdom is split, and things just get really bad. So Solomon is the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Now, the green ones are the good kings. There's not many good kings. Jehoshaphat is the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah may sound familiar. He was the king who was on the throne when Isaiah goes into the temple, the beginning of Isaiah. Now, there's some kings skipped here. As I say it, Ahaziah, say it for me, Sam. Ahaziah, Ahaziah, Jehoash, and Amaziah. Okay, they are skipped. Uzziah is the father of Jotham. Jotham is the father of Ahaz. Ahaz is the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amnon. Amnon, the father of Josiah. Then we have some that are skipped. Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. And Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Right. So, so during this time here, you have the prophets that are preaching, right? You have Isaiah preaching. You have, you have Jeremiah preaching. The prophets are calling the children back. You have gone the way of your leaders, the kings. You're worshiping false idols. You're committing spiritual adultery. Come back, come back, come back. And they don't listen, and they go into exile to Babylon. So they're, they've hit rock bottom, and now we're going to ascend back again. We're going to come out of Babylon and we're going to head towards the Messiah. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud, right? So we go from after the exile, Jeconiah goes into exile. He's the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel is the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, uh, Zerubbabel is this, he's the governor of, of Judah when they're sent back from exile. He's the one that oversaw uh, the re- rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is the father of Abihud. Abihud is the father of Eliakim. Eliakim is the father of Azor. Azor, okay, this is, there's little known about these people here. This is like Matthew had some documents somewhere where he was giving access to the lineage between the time they came back from exile in Babylon to the time that Christ was born, right? We had this 400 years of silence. The prophets aren't speaking. The weary world is waiting for the Messiah, we have Azar, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. I like how Luke puts it, supposedly the, you know, the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, 
And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. There was a lot there, a lot of names. I need to take a drink because my mouth is so dry. Now, as we look at this genealogy, we have to understand that, that Matthew is giving us a legal foundation for Jesus' lineage. Right? Because Joseph was not his biological father, was he? Joseph was his stepfather. But Jesus was adopted by Joseph, and therefore Jesus had the same legal rights as Joseph. Joseph was a descendant of David. Jesus is of the line of David, and they would say, Luke would say, because of Mary. If you agree with that. And so Jesus has a legal claim to the throne of Judah, to the throne of Israel. Matthew has in mind legal, not necessarily physical, descent. That is, the transmission of legal heirship and the idea of paternity on two levels, divine and human, with position and society being determined by the mother's husband. Right? Jesus was born to Mary. Joseph had a legal claim to the throne of David. Ergo, Jesus had a legitimate right to the throne. We finish this up with this. Again, we talk about this 14. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, then 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Right? I've already said that some generations were left out, right? There were, he, he skipped some names. So really, there were more than 14 generations. So why is it that Matthew, he gives us 14, 14, and 14? Why the number 14? So, so what's the big deal about 14? Now, Whenever I study, I read several commentaries, okay? I, more than one. These are on four. And, and this is what most of them say about the number 14. Right now, we want to temper this, okay, afterwards. But this is what they say. So there's this gematria, or gematria, gematria. It's the practice. So the Hebrew alphabet, each letter is assigned a number. Each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is assigned a number. So it's the practice of assigning numerical value to a name, a word, or phrase according to an alphanumerical cipher, right? So the cipher is this white thing, and it's got numbers associated with the letters, right? If you look at the, at the name David, right, as this commentator tells us, and D.A. Carson, I've said this before, he's a genius, right? And he, he says this is why there's 14. In the Hebrew, David, Dalit, Yod Dalit, DWD, Dalit Yod Dalit. The D carries an alphabet. It's, it's the weight of four. The W has six, right? So you have two fours, and the six is what? Eight is 14, right? Right? So two fours and a six is 14. So the number that David gives us is 14. And the point is, is that Jesus the Messiah is the son of David. We're going to see this throughout the gospel, that the concept of son of David is mentioned. Now, I don't want you to take this and run with it. Some people are into numerology, and they're like, this, this, this verse has this number, and, all that, and they have all these things for God. They know when Jesus Christ is going to return, all these things. They, they know who the Antichrist is. I, I don't believe in all that, okay? But this was very common practice in the Jewish mind. Matthew used 14 generations for some reason. Okay, it's seven, which is the number of completion, twice times three. You know, take what you want from it. But this is 
Many, many commentators ascribe to this. So as we look at the genealogy, remember, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the long-awaited Messiah and God's king for all people. That's how it begins this genealogy, and that's his point. Well, what can we learn from this genealogy? What does it teach us, right? Because hey, you may have some head knowledge, right? You know about the numbers that go along with the Hebrew letters, and you're going to remember Tamar, right? Because that's a very, ooh, I remember about Tamar. But what does it mean to you? What does it teach us? Besides the fact that I can't say all those long names. Well, first thing we see is that God is sovereign, right? From the very beginning, from the moment that he promised Adam and Eve, that the seed of the woman, that, that, that one would come from the woman who would destroy the devil and reverse the curse and deliver God's people. God has been sovereignly working throughout history. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we say that God controls everything. His providence is the outworking of his goodness in our lives, right? His providence, pro video, he sees and provides, right? He, he provides for his people, and his sovereignty allows him to do that. So his sovereign, providential control of all circumstances. And it isn't just for people like Jesus or David or Abraham. It's for us as well, that God is sovereign. And the same God that is sovereign, who controls all things, is a patient and merciful God. Right? I didn't spend a long time with some of those names in that genealogy, but, but God had every right to just smite the nation of Israel, get rid of them, and start over so many times. But he made a covenant with his people. He's the covenant keeper. He's the God of loving kindness. He's the God of hesed. He's patient and he's merciful. And friends, if God is patient and merciful with a man who commits adultery, then has the woman's husband murdered, you think God might be patient and merciful with you? I believe so. And God is faithful, right? God promised a Messiah. God promised a Messiah. He kept his promise. And because God keeps his promises, we can have hope in our own lives that when he makes promises to us, he's going to keep those promises. And in this text, in this passage, we see that all the promises of God are yes in who? Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. God is faithful. And friends, God's not just faithful in the big things like bringing the Messiah. That's a huge thing, and we're thankful for that. God is faithful in all things. And Jesus is clear about that. And we'll see that in Matthew chapter 6, right? Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from God's will. If he's faithful to the sparrow, he's faithful to you. God is faithful. And this is the part I particularly appreciate as we look at this genealogy that God uses broken people to accomplish his great purposes. Friends, if you're like me, you've done some things, you're like, God, I don't know how you could possibly use me to accomplish anything. And God says, first of all, it's not about you. Second of all, look at history. Look at the people that I have used to accomplish my purposes. God uses broken people like you and like me. Lastly, God cares about the least and the lowest. As we look 
at those names given to us in that genealogy. I mean, consider Ruth. And Ruth, Ruth was a Moabitess, right? The Moabites were people that the Jews weren't supposed to interact with. Okay, so, so we find this Moabitess who's now a widow, and God cares for her and brings her into Bethlehem, the city of David, the birthplace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, gives her a husband and brings her into the family tree of Jesus Christ. God specializes in using the weak, right? Why? Because when he uses the weak, his power is perfected. And who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So as you think about the family tree of Jesus, wouldn't it be great to be a part of a family tree like Jesus? Wouldn't that be awesome? Friends, guess what? You can be. You can be a part of that family tree. Because we're told clearly that those of us who come to faith in Jesus Christ are adopted into the family of God. This is a beautiful truth, right? Paul talks about in his letter to the church of Galatia. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? Through faith. Not by works that you can do. Remember, you're broken. I'm broken. We're all broken. We can do nothing to earn our way into the family of God. Nothing. It's only through faith in Christ Jesus. And as we look at history, it took some time, right? But God is faithful. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those what? Under the law, so that we might what? Receive adoption to sonship. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We're a part of the family tree of Jesus Christ. And it's better than that. We're co-heirs with Christ, right? We have the riches that God has for His Son, Christ Jesus. We have those, right? Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave bound to sin, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you an heir in the family of God. So as we begin our look at Matthew's Gospel. He begins with the lineage of Jesus Christ. He begins by declaring that Jesus Christ is the legitimate son of David, the Messiah, the one who will destroy the enemies of God, the one who will rule over a kingdom on this earth. And we can be there with him in the family if we come in faith through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to dive into your word this morning and look at this genealogy. Father, I pray that you would teach us the lessons that you would have us to learn. Father, help us to see your sovereignty. Father, help us to see how patient and kind you have been with us. Father, help us to see how merciful you've been. Father, please help us to see your faithfulness. Help us to understand that you do use people who have sinned and fallen in great ways. Father, help us to see that you care about the least and the lowliest. Help us to see the great love that you have for us through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, if you would stand.